All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining what may be the most special edition of Colin that I've ever had the pleasure of, of undertaking uh, here with Aaron Mate, who um, has been in the trenches with me for a number of years now as we've waged information warfare um, <laughs> against... <laughs> Against those who have a very, I would say, let's say, uh, less than rational take on geopolitical subjects and the uh, U.S. domestic ramifications, particularly vis-a-vis Russia. Um, You and I uh, uh, had occasion to interview uh, Stephen Cohen on a number of um, a number a number of times during the heyday of RussiaGate, and uh, it would be nice to have somebody like him around now to give his uh, very much-needed perspective on the current uh, Ukraine situation. But uh, sadly, as people may know, he, he died, um, what was it, like a year and a half ago? So, uh, you know, there's less people than there had been uh, filling that void at the moment. Uh, and we do have a very precarious situation, I would say. And, you know, I use the, world, the, wor- the term World War III... Not so lightly, um, and not because I think that World War III is necessarily going to happen, but, you know, if there's even a remote likelihood of World War III breaking out, you think that all available resources should be marshaled to forestall that eventuality, and yet what we have in the U.S. is the media and the government seeming to do everything in their power to engineer the prospect of World War III. And again, I'm not saying World War III literally is likely to happen, but I'm saying that, you know, when you have significant officials in the U.S., like this woman, Evelyn Farkas, who was in the Pentagon during the 2014 Ukraine coup and was in an advisory role with with Barack Obama, when she's writing op-eds claiming that... World War III is actually a distinct possibility if the U.S. doesn't prepare itself for direct combat with Russia, then, you know, that's concerning enough that I think we should at least take the the possibility seriously. And then also you had last weekend, you know, at the onset of the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing, uh, China and Russia get together and make what is the most, I think, fulsome display of kind of joint affinity on the foreign policy domain that they've really ever done, at least in very recent history, uh, including China expressing support for Russia's aims in Ukraine, at least insofar as opposing further enlargement of NATO. So, uh, you know, a number of factors here, I think, weigh in favor of being extremely wary of how this could escalate, potentially. So, uh, I know you've been writing about this and, and covering it as one would expect, you know, as have I. And just to kind of set things off, and you know, if people want to call in, we'll, we'll, we'll do that in a little bit. But you know, one thing that I wanted to just note to maybe spur the discussion initially is that you see a curious dynamic happening in a lot of this coverage and commentary of what's transpiring in Ukraine, where... Over and over again, the actual Ukrainian officials, not least the president, Zelensky, have been clear that they don't believe or they don't buy into U.S. prognostications about the supposed imminence uh, 
of an invasion. And remember, the U.S. has been saying more or less that an invasion has been imminent for around a month at this point. And Zelensky has been very consistent in saying that he does not think that an invasion is imminent. He cites his own intelligence sources as the basis for his dismissal of U.S. claims of imminence. And he also has been chastising in, I think, very stark terms, both the U.S. media and government, for fostering a panic in Ukraine or attempting to foster a panic uh, that is detached from the actual factual reality. Um, And one thing that you'll see when those comments are reported, it's not just Zelensky. I saw a a report uh, a few days ago where a member of the Ukrainian uh, parliament was interviewed and this is somebody who is you know, aligned politically with Zelensky, and she said, quote, the aggression will not happen, meaning the aggression that the U.S. Uh, foretells will not happen. And she's blunt about it. I mean, so it's, it's, it's not just a view in Ukraine that's somehow limited to the, the, the person of Zelensky. Um, but one thing that you'll see in U.S. commentary, and I just saw this again repeated today on the Sunday uh, shows, quote-unquote, um, where uh, Pelosi was asked about this seeming discrepancy between the U.S. getting increasingly alarmist about its predictions, uh, whereas, on the other hand, uh, the Ukrainian officials who stand to lose the most from an invasion should it actually occur, you know, they're the ones who are the most adamant in, in downplaying the, the purported threat. And Pelosi says something that I think is illustrative of a lot of the slants of the commentary here when she said that, you know, she understands why Zelensky, for his own individual kind of domestic political reasons, would have to respond in the way that he has. I mean, he has to project resolve and he has to encourage calm and he also has to um, dissuade economic flight from Ukraine. And that's basically Pelosi and a number of other pundits and politicians have done this, accusing effectively Zelensky of having an ulterior political motive, meaning that he has to (laughs) avoid the actual facts on the ground, which is that an invasion is allegedly imminent uh, in service of advancing his own political ambitions, which is tied in with not having an economic collapse in Ukraine and, you know, looking like he's the calm actor. Um, and yet, and that's just taken as kind of like an article of faith that, of course, Zelensky would have that ulterior motive. Yet, you almost never see an ulterior motive posited for the, uh, you know, progressively insane proclamations coming out of the U.S. government and media on this subject. Now, what are those potential ulterior political motives for why the U.S. could be, you know, amping up this alarmist rhetoric? Well, on the... One is what was suggested in the New York Times article, Aaron, that you shared recently, where they go into the history or the recent history of the U.S. not really uh, matching up with Russia in terms of, quote, information warfare, meaning the U.S. feels like it was bested by Russia from the 2016 election in the domain of information warfare and Putin succeeded in, you know, sowing chaos in the U S and even getting Trump installed into office. And uh, therefore it's imperative now for the U S to uh, up its game 
and get one over on Russia in terms of its own prowess at information warfare. And if Biden were to do that, you know, if the Biden administration were to be perceived as doing that, then that could militate to its political advantage, presumably, right? And, you know, secondarily, the U.S. is now in this, uh, has kind of constructed this paradoxical situation where if Russia does not invade, then Biden and the members of the Biden administration can claim credit for deterring Russia. And actually, Pelosi was overt in saying that just this morning. With, she said the following, uh, if, if, quote, if Russia doesn't invade, it's not that he never intended to, it's that the sanctions work, meaning the threat of additional <laughs> sanctions. So Biden wins either way. And if Russia does invade, then that means that their predictions were right. So they cannot be proven wrong. I mean, the, the, the logic being set forth here means that the U.S. claims are basically unfalsifiable, which is kind of a convenient situation to be in if you're running foreign policy. You can never mm-hmm. be proven wrong. Um, so those are some, just two, and I'm sure we could think of more, potentially ulterior motives driving U.S. decision-making in this arena with the constant leaks and the constant claims that an invasion is imminent, even though you know imminent maybe suggests that something you claim is imminent would probably have to happen before a month passes in order for imminent to have any meaning as a term. Um, but you know that that that's a disparity that I think has not been at, a, at all adequately analyzed by the media, which is overwhelmingly, as usual, kind of operating on a pro-war slant. And what do I mean by pro-war slant? Well, they're not questioning any of the kind of premises underlying U.S. Involvement in Ukraine. I mean, in that New York Times article that you tweeted recently, Aaron, I mean, there's a giant photo of U.S. Army soldiers in Ukraine, you know, conducting supposed advisory missions. But as we know, those can always escalate into direct combat missions, as w- which is what happened in Syria. Um, you know, when Obama initially dispatched U.S. troops to Syria, supposedly they weren't even have troops quote, boots on the ground, and they weren't going to get engaged in combat, and then you end up with U.S. troop uh, casualties in Syria and, and combat. Um, but, you know, that's one facet of U.S. intervention, which is that they're actually U.S. military personnel on the ground in Ukraine, not to mention the thousands of troops being dispatched to other Eastern European countries at the moment, meaning they're increasing the troop presences. Um, nobody questions, seemingly, that the military drills and the large-scale exercises that the U.S. has been undertaking in Eastern Europe now for quite a while, including in 2021, when there were, there were live-fire drills held in the country of Estonia, which is on the literal border with Russia. I mentioned this in my Substack article from this week. Um, the, very seldom is it mentioned that you know there may be some disputation behind whether it's advisable for the U.S. to be sending lethal arms to Ukraine in the first place. I mean, that became sort of sanctified bipartisan consensus in the last couple of years, uh, in part because of the first impeachment of Trump when it was just became like a solemn obligation that everybody across the political spe- spectrum kind of, you know, piously affirmed that, of course, it was absolutely vital for the U.S. to support Ukraine by sending lethal arms constantly to that country. And you know, Trump needed to be impeached because he appeared to temporarily freeze those dispatchments, although they never actually stopped. I mean, under Trump and now Biden, 
lethal arms have continuously flowed to Ukraine. So that's what I mean when I say the U.S. has a U.S. media has a pro-war slant. They don't do anything that questions kind of like the presum- the assumptions that underlie the U.S. role in this and how the U.S. posture has maybe increased tensions and increased the likelihood of some kind of catastrophic eventuality that could, yes, maybe not likely, but conceivably lead to a larger scale war, maybe even, you know, most disastrously World War III. Um, So, Aaron, uh, what is your take on that and what might you have to add in our joint uh, information warfare exercise here? (laughs) Well, my take on the question of ulterior motives, like what's really driving the Biden administration on this, it's a few things. First of all, it's really underrated just how responsible the current Biden gang is for this current crisis. You can't really acknowledge it. You're not allowed to acknowledge it in U.S. media. But it's just a fact that there was a coup in Ukraine in 2014. Whatever you want to say about the government of Yanukovych, he was very corrupt. There's no doubt about that. And there were very real protests against his corruption. But the U.S. played a critical role in backing the far-right forces inside those Maidan protests who didn't just want to oppose corruption but wanted regime change. And, you know, the clearest example or the clearest evidence of that is the infamous leaked phone call where some intelligence service, whether it was Ukraine or Russia, intercepted Victoria Nuland, who was then a senior official under Obama and is now back under Biden basically running Ukraine policy or helping to run Ukraine policy, where she's talking to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and she's choosing or they're choosing who the next Ukrainian government is going to be after they depose Yanukovych. And, you know, she says Yats is the guy and the guy, Yats, Yatsyuk, is who a few weeks later became Ukraine's prime minister after uh, basically a series of events that where the U.S. helped kill a compromise deal that would hold new elections and Yanukovych was forced to flee. And the reason all that happened was because a few months earlier, Yanukovych had been placed in this awful position by the U.S. and the EU in that um, they were trying to basically pull him away from Russia's orbit completely. They wanted him to sign this economic agreement that would have cut off basically Ukraine's cultural and economic ties to Russia, which is its neighbor. And certainly there was a constituency inside Ukraine that was really behind that, that very much favored that. But the problem is that Ukraine is split. There are people who really identify with the West and hate Russia, but also people who really identify with Russia, and Russia is actually their first language. And so Yanukovych was going to sign this agreement with the EU that would have also put him in in political uh, hot water because it was calling for all the standard IMF austerity demands, so raising the pension uh, age, cutting pension benefits, cutting energy subsidies. And Yanukovych, after, you know, uh, playing, uh, after basically flirting with the EU and the U.S., he got cold feet and he backed down because he realized that signing this deal would mean trouble for him. And then he said he was going to sign an agreement with Russia because Russia took advantage and offered him a more generous deal and also played hardball by um, cutting off some trade and basically subjecting him to a little bit of a blockade. So Yanukovych then switched over to Russia And that really angered the U.S., and that's what caused them to ramp up their support for the protests. And, you know, you had John McCain and Chris Murphy going over there and meeting with um, far-right groups and cheering them on. And that led to this coup. And that's what continues until until this day. I mean, that then set off 
Russia's decision to seize Crimea because they didn't want the risk of a NATO state on their border controlling their most important seaport. And uh, they also started supporting the, the Russian-backed forces in the east. And so it just the, the critical role of Biden in all this can't be um, stressed enough. And then, you know, just to, just to underscore Biden's own roles, like he was such a key figure that Burisma, this Ukrainian energy company, gave Hunter Biden a lucrative board seat, obviously to curry favor with Biden. And, you know, Biden now says it's because Hunter Biden is a talented guy and all this stuff. But we all know really the reason there. So you have the Biden administration, all of them playing a key role in starting all of this. And I think they're, they're more beholden to the far-right element of the Ukrainian polity than even the Trump administration was, even though the Trump administration, contrary to popular perception, was sending over weapons uh, to Ukraine and basically undermining any kind of diplomacy. Um, and then you have the fact that you do have, speaking of diplomacy, you have an agreement on the books between all the parties involved that could solve this whole thing. And it's called the Minsk II Accords. And that would basically mean that in return for the Donbass demilitarizing, the Donbass being the, the area controlled by Russian-backed forces, in return for them giving up their weapons and stopping the fight, they would get autonomy. They would get basically uh, more authority under a federalized Ukrainian system. And that would end the fighting, but it also would effectively end Ukraine's ambitions to become a NATO state because if you have this major region that is autonomous inside Ukraine, they can effectively veto any future membership inside NATO. So I think there are forces inside, far-right forces inside Ukraine and far-right forces inside the U.S. government that want to uh, kill that agreement. It was, reached, it was signed by Ukraine in 2015, but, the, but these elements are not happy with that. So I see this crisis as an effort to sort of trigger enough um, rancor and hostility between Russia and Ukraine so as to poison Minsk II for good and avoid it being implemented. And then you have also Nord Stream 2, which is this gas pipeline between Germany and Russia. It's already complete. It's built. But it's just, it's just waiting a German certification process. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this crisis props up while Germany is going through that process to give it final approval for the pipeline to go online. And the pipeline would basically mean increased integration between Russia and the rest of Europe. And that's just not what Hawks in Washington want. Uh, it also, by the way, for Ukraine, would deprive them of billions of dollars that they get in transit fees by being a pass-through for Russian gas. And so I think those forces combine to basically try to whip up a, a crisis with the aim of, of undermining diplomacy and Russia's integration with Europe. And, you know, U.S. officials and powerful U.S. people have not made this secret. Back in 2013, right before the Maidan protest kicked off, Carl Gershman, who's the head of the National Endowment for Democracy – which is basically a regime change cutout of the CIA. He had an op-ed in the Washington Post where he talked about Ukraine being, quote, the biggest prize. So Ukraine, in his eyes, is a prize to be taken away from Russia. And in fact, he went on to say that if Ukraine can be pulled into the Western orbit, then that will redound to Russia and will possibly lead to Putin being ousted as well. So it's really no secret what the agenda is here. It's really no secret how much contempt the U.S. has for its allies, including Ukraine, when they don't play along. So now the fact that Zelensky is you know, asking for evidence about this imminent Russia invasion and telling, telling people not to panic, now you're seeing you know, people in Washington starting to throw him under the bus. Mark Ames, the journalist of uh, Radio Warnerd, 
just tweeted out this article from C- an op-ed in CNN by a guy named Michael Botyarkara. I cannot pronounce the last name. Michael B, I'll, I'll say. And he is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is basically NATO's lobby in Washington. And he writes this about Zelensky. Zelensky's credentials for holding office are being increasingly looked at by a nation nervous about the days and months ahead, a month ahead, questioning whether the former comedian will succumb to pressure to capitulate to a lopsided deal, which was inked before he was voted into office. And that lopsided deal is what I was talking about. It was Minsk. So that, I think, is what is driving Washington here. And it means not just contempt for any Ukrainian like Zelensky who's having, you know, reservations about being used as cannon fodder. But Germany, too. I mean, look at the contempt towards Germany for refusing to go along with the narrative, for refusing to commit to sanctions. I mean, Biden just this week stood next to the German chancellor and said that no matter what, if Russia invades, we'll stop the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And the German chancellor declined to, you know, say that he would agree to that. But Biden didn't care because for some reason, Biden thinks he has the right to decide Germany's decisions in terms of who it trades energy with. And um, there was that there was that German uh, Navy chief who last month, if you remember this, he was forced to resign after he said that Russia deserves respect and that he doesn't think that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to happen. So for that heresy, he was the head of the Navy was forced to stand down. And, I, you know, in terms of who put it in terms of capturing, I think, the real view of of the U.S. from its purported allies, the Wall Street Journal had a great passage where they were interviewing recently some aides to the German chancellor. And they say this, uh, just capturing their, their attitude. This is the Wall Street Journal summarizing their attitude. They say that they're not even so much concerned about Russian retributions or concerns about their gas supplies. Instead, they say America's push to bring Ukraine into the Western sphere and supply it with weapons is adding to the instability in Europe. So that's really the view, at least in Germany, or of German aides towards the U.S. right now. And the irony of that being the prevailing view in the German government, which I think is shared by many people, when you look at the U.S. claiming that it's acting right now in defense of its allies, even though none of its supposed allies are on board with its claims about this imminent Russian invasion. So in terms of the question of the ulterior motives, that's, that's my read on it. Yeah, well, one ally that may be on board with the U.S. and its you know, increasingly alarmist declarations about the supposed imminence of war is the UK and the potential ulterior motive that could be driving decision making in the UK is pretty abundantly clear, which is that Boris Johnson is on the verge of potentially being toppled by his own party, the Conservative Party, because you have this kind of growing kind of scandal, which has some petty elements to it, but nonetheless has some, you know, serious components, which is that, you know, he he and his staff at uh, Downing Street had held unsanctioned parties during uh, COVID lockdown in violation of the rules that his own government set forth. And there's a trickle of these stories coming out. And he was confronted in uh, Parliament about it recently. And a lot of his longtime allies in the Conservative Party have now uh, demanded that he step down. And all of a sudden, you have this glorious opportunity for him to demonstrate what a bold statesman he is, and he jets off to Ukraine and has these, you know, talks to with Zelensky and so forth. And he was actually just there this past week, and in an interview with Sky News in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine you know, the the correspondent 
asks initially at first, at first a couple of questions about the Ukraine situation, but then understandably pivots to this uh, precarious circumstance that Johnson finds himself in in the UK, and he just parries off those questions as not relevant. So, I mean, that's often a tactic by which, you know, beleaguered heads of state can kind of consolidate their power by saying, look, domestic scandal and problems are not of concern right now. We all have to focus and unite on this uh, foreign threat. So, you know, I'm not saying that's 100 percent the rationale behind why the UK is once again, as it often does, kind of parroting the U.S., you know, uh, tack on this. But, you know, it's something worth considering, and yet it's seen as gosh to even raise that prospect. And even also this this past week, the uh, foreign secretary, Liz Truss, for the UK, was in, uh, was in Russia, in Moscow, and in communication with Lavrov, who's this very experienced, you know, f- uh, foreign uh, affairs chief in Russia. And Liz Truss was questioned by Lavrov about whether she agrees that the uh, provinces in uh, of uh, in Russia are <laughs> that the US that the Russia has sovereign control over provinces in Russia and she responded with this trite answer about how the UK will never recognize Russia's claims over disputed territory. So, in other words, Liz Trust, the foreign secretary of the UK, didn't know that certain of these provinces were actually in Russia, uh, the Rostov and Vaznev regions. So, like, Lavrov was testing her to ascertain her basic knowledge of the geography, and she didn't know. So that's, that's the UK playing its typical role of just kind of parroting what the, um, the U.S. government does. But uh, also, you know, I want to... Michael, get, let, Michael yeah. let me... Let me give you let me give you one more hilarious example because it it's it came out recently and the US media just let it fly without any kind of protest or even acknowledgement. But it was really funny. So remember last month when the UK came out and said that they had discovered this supposed Russian coup? Yeah, it was laundered by the it was laundered through the UK by the US as usual. It was a hundred percent but so but but the thing is initially the US pretended is that the UK had discovered it, right? Like, oh, well the British have discovered this Russian coup plot. Right, and, and that, mean, in, and in that means it has more credibility because it's like a second yeah, exactly. source coming up. Exactly, yes. yeah, and, and that's what they said at first. And U.S. officials even told the New York Times that, well, the British collected this intelligence, but we think it's accurate. It, it, look, it looks good to us. And by the way, on its face, it was so stupid because one of the supposed uh, people who Russia was planning to install as their new puppet in Ukraine was on the Russian sanctions list. Yeah, and literally, so, he literally laughed when a reporter, when a Guardian reporter called him and asked him about it. He literally laughed. Yeah, yeah. But so a week later, it came out. This was in the Washington Post, where actually some U.S. officials admitted that it was the U.S. that had generated this so-called intelligence, and the Biden administration asked the U.K. to make it public, which raises so many questions. If you're if you if you're so confident in this intelligence. Why are you claiming that the British discovered it? And why did you ask them to make it public? Why don't you come out and say it yourself? And the answer is, this is what the U.S. always does when it needs to help manufacture consent for a war. It pawns it off to somebody else to make it look more credible as if someone else had discovered it independently. They did the exact same thing with the Iraq war where the Brits came out with the uh, so-called dossier where Iraq was 45 minutes away from using WMDs. And of yeah, course, that was, the original, that was the original dodgy. That was the original, and and by the way, and then they, you know, you could argue they probably did it again with with in 2016, where you know, uh, the I mean, 
I don't know about the U.S. government, but certainly the Clinton campaign, they farmed it out to Christopher Steele to come up with these fake Trump-Russia allegations. So there's this documented pattern of it. They get caught brazenly lying, like falsely claiming that Britain has discovered this plot, and nobody in the media cares. Um, for my latest article on Substack, which I just published yesterday, I wrote the Times, and I was like, have you guys looked into this discrepancy where some your sources told you that the British discovered it, but now other U.S. officials are claiming that actually it was the U.S. that came up with it? And the Times said, we stand by our sources. So, you know, that's it. Oh, yeah, that's very clarifying. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned about the U.S. sort of aligning with these far-right elements in Ukraine. And I think it's worth just sort of noting that although the concept of what it means to be far right in the U.S. has now been vastly expanded to encompass anybody who's like 2% left, uh, you know, right word of like the progressive Joe caucus. Rogan. Yeah. Joe, Joe Rogan's yeah, Joe a far Rogan. right leader. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Joe Rogan's a far right leader. You know, I'm basically getting ready to institute the Third Reich along with Glenn Greenwald and you and or something. <laughs> And, and, and so, you know, that whole notion has been diffused to the point of incoherence, but there were genuine far-right slash fascistic elements in Ukraine that the U.S. unabashedly aligned itself with in the course of helping to facilitate the 2014 coup, right? You have contemporaneous reports, you know, when the so-called Maidan protests were happening from, you know, Western correspondents Report, uh, noting that you know the the battlefields were being manned by outright militia groups, and in 2018, the U.S. government finally got around uh, to uh, passing legislation to bar the transfer of arms to this uh, formation in Ukraine called what was it again? The Azov Battalion, yes. Yes. which, uh, among other things, declared that, quote, the historic mission of our nation in this critical moment is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival. So that's one of the many glorious groups in the U.S. that have been, uh, in, the, in Ukraine, that have been trumpeted by the U.S. as these freedom fighters. And in fact, at the 2019 impeachment of Trump, and I wrote about this at the time, I went back and reread it recently for Real, Real Clear Politics, but the very first impeachment witness against Trump, brought, called by the De House Democrats, was this person, George Kent. I don't know if you recall this kind of cast of characters. He was the bow tie guy. Yeah, yeah. He was a yeah. senior State Department official. He's actually still in office now. And uh, he heralded the uh, resistors of the Russian incursion in 2014 as kind of the modern-day, quote, uh, Minutemen. So he's trying to interweave, right, right, the Russian, the Ukrainian resistance with the U.S. Revolutionary War kind of mythology. And nobody brings up the fact that amongst those groups that he's, you know, lavishing praise upon were outright fascists who want to preserve the right race and rail against, like, quote, organized Jewry. I mean, when yeah. you mentioned Chris Murphy and McCain on the infamous trip in December of 2013 to, to Ukraine to kind of speak at a rally... There's still an infamous photo that I put in my Substack of yeah. Murphy and McCain on stage <laughs> at a rally with this guy. I mean, he he looks. If you just look at him in the photo, he looks like just ca cartoonishly sinister. Yeah. Name is Ola Tannenbrook, who you know was then you know just painted as this innocuous quote opposition leader, but. 
his party were unabashed sympathizers with the historical Nazi party. Like, not just Nazis in this vague sense that anybody can be slammed with if they deviate from, like, liberal orthodoxy or something, but the historical Nazis. And, you know, he's the one who was, you know, ranting against the threat of, quote, organized jury. And there's Chris Murphy on stage alongside this individual. And now, you know, f- flash forward, Murphy's back making these, you know, official uh, del- uh, trips to Ukraine without any regard for maybe some embarrassment about what happened the past, last time this happened. So, I mean, for all the hysteria in the U.S. around the supposed scourge of, you know, the far right and the, and the Nazis and, and, and so on and so forth, particularly during the Trump years, it's very interesting how kind of blasé and untroubled much of the media and the political establishment was regarding the over-alignment between the U.S. and these far right elements in Ukraine over the course of the 2014 episode to present. Um, so that's just something also to bear in mind uh, as you know we kind of sift through the incoherence here. Michael, let me read to you from so that phone call I mentioned before that that intercepted phone call between Victoria Newland. Victoria Newland. She's she's back in government and, now. I mean, she's not just she hasn't been cast out to pasture. No, she's back in government. She's the one helping to set policy at the, right now. Despite yes, yes, yes. And so you mentioned that far right leader who Chris Murphy and McCain posed with. Uh, Tannenbuch, however you pronounce it, Tannenbuch, I think. And they, they, they talk about him in the phone call, okay? Because they're talking about like, they're, they're talking about the, they're basically formulating the upcoming um, officials inside the Ukrainian government. So they're weighing all these different people. And this is what they say about Tannenbuch, okay? The pro, uh, this, is a, this is Jeffrey Piat, the, the Ukrainian ambassador. The problem is going to be Tannenbuch and his guys. And I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating in all of this, because basically, at that point, Yanukovych was still in office, and he's worried about you know far right people taking over. And then Newland says, "I think Yats Yatsenyuk is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. What he needs is Kleech and Tyenbuk on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know." Uh, and so what she's saying is basically that Tyne Book, this far right fascist, it's not going to look good if he comes into power. But he, but the incoming government and their guy Yats Yatsenyuk, they need Tyne Book on the outside to basically be their muscle on the street to like move people and protesters in their favor if they need it. So th- that was their only concern about the far right guy. Not that he was far right, but that it just wouldn't look good if he actually came into power. Right, because, you know, <laughs> clearly the overheated concern or feigned concern about the supposed scourge of the far right is extremely circumstantial in the U.S., and it's only really emphasized when it's kind of in keeping with some, whatever the broader political initiative is. I mean, there have been countless times when uh, supposedly, you know, liberal uh, administrations have found common cause with elements in uh, other countries that would be commonly regarded as far right, but it's just, you know, accepted as the price of doing business to achieve whatever the geopolitical... Listen, another great example, and I'm sorry to people who follow me who hear me quote this all the time, but yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of a really infamous email written by Jake Sullivan, our current national security advisor. So his job is protecting U.S. national security advisor. Him writing an email to Hillary Clinton on February 12th, 2012. And he wrote to Hillary Clinton about Syria. He wrote, quote, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. Right, right, right. And Al-Qaeda, last time I checked, is not exactly a liberal, moderate group. You know, they probably have, they probably have beliefs that you could, 
I think plausibly associate with the far what right. If, what is their stance on vaccine mandates? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, it's hilarious. And of course, you know, Jake, so that email was, you know, drawn from, was that from the uh, FOIA State Department emails or was that from the... That was FOIA. Hack email. Yeah, okay, that was it. FOIA, yeah. Yeah. Thank um, you, FOIA. God bless FOIA. Right. Which, of course, Hillary Clinton stymied for as long as she possibly could because she knew that it would contain maybe potentially inconvenient revelations. And I can't I can't wait for the FOIAs about this current round of Ukraine mania. It's going to be good. It's going to be very fruitful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one last point, then we'll we'll open it up for people who want to uh, chime in, Aaron, is that, you know, one thing that I over the course of dealing with the nonstop deluge of Russiagate, tried to emphasize and was often ridiculed and uh, scorned for raising, was that, look, a truism of international relations theory, and you don't even have to be at all immersed in international relations theory to kind of grasp the intuitive nature of this, is that domestic political dynamics kind of inevitably affect the conduct of foreign policy in any state, including the U.S., Right. So when over the course of Russiagate, passions were being flamed day in and day out against the alleged menace of Russia for having, quote unquote, interfered in U.S. politics to such an extreme extent that they single handedly installed who many regarded as the most you know, dangerous president of all time as a you know, Manchurian candidate then that's inevitably going to kind of trickle up or down or whatever direction fits with this <laughs> metaphor into how U.S. Policy, foreign policy is uh, perceived to be uh, the right way to conduct, right? And that means taking a harder line on Russia or, quote-unquote, confronting Russia. In the 2020 presidential election, uh, in the primaries, the Democratic candidates almost across the board constantly competed amongst themselves for who had the most bravado <laughs> in their eagerness to qu- confront Russia, uh, including Joe Biden, who you know saw it as you know his solemn duty to show that the U.S. stands firmly against uh, Putin because Trump had been his quote p- uh, puppy. So it went from <laughs> Biden accusing Trump of being uh, Putin's puppy. Uh, after Hillary had accused him of being, what was it? I forget the term she used, some other poodle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so my take throughout all that was to kind of underscore why the dynamics that were given rise to by Russia Gate were, to my mind, extremely destructive, which is that you were creating a whole set of new cons- uh, incentives that made itself, among other things, progressives, meaning liberals, Democrats, even the progressive media, viewed it as a quote-unquote progressive value to be excessively antagonistic toward Russia. And that could ultimately manifest on the world stage as part of the foreign policy approach that a administration takes uh, vis-a-vis Russia. And so I would always say, um, you know, again, to the consternation of some, that Russiagate was having the effect of potentially creating the international climate more perilous and more likely to result in some kind of catastrophic eventuality, such as, yes, World War III. And, you know, you had the ultimate atomic scientist kind of uh, inching the doomsday clock closer to midnight, in part because of domestic political upheavals, uh, not just around the world, but also in the U.S., 
um, you had you know plenty of other signs that this really uh, grave deterioration in U.S. Russia relations could have very foreboding uh, impacts, and a lot of the time, what I would hear from you know the progressive commentariat or from other you know media figures who shall go unnamed right now was that I was being extremely hysterical myself. <laughs> you know, I was trying to just you know make excuses for Trump and suggest that he doesn't have agency because he's being forced to take aggressive actions against Russia. Uh, by the domestic political climate where I should be blaming Trump individually, which, you know, I can in a way, you know, which is true. I mean, Trump did fill the administration with hawks, uh, anti-Russia hawks like Pompeo and Bolton and such. We know the whole story. So this is not denying that he had agency in the matter. It's simply noting what had previously been a basic truth of any analysis of how states conduct foreign policy. Domestic political dynamics affect it. And if the, the the number one domestic political incentive emanating out of Russiagate is to demand a harder line against Russia and more antagonism against Russia, then yeah, that's not maybe the greatest thing should a perilous uh, circumstance arise down the line. And we're seeing the fruits of that now, I would argue. So uh, was I delusional all along or has <laughs> that been borne out to some degree? Well, first of all, I love the idea of people who are convinced that the U.S. was invaded by a Russian bot army. I mean, that, that really was a talking point, that we were invaded by Russian bots and their cyber army of trolls. That was uh, equivalent to Pearl Harbor. Could... Gerald Nadler, the, and... the, the U.S. congressman who later yeah. manned the impeachment proceedings, went on Chris Hayes' show in 2018 and said, Twitter trolls and Facebook memes, I'm sorry if you've heard this before, people, but it bears repeating, was akin to Pearl Harbor. That was said, go look... Yeah, so I love the idea of that crowd accusing us of being hysterical for warning about the potential dangers of encouraging confrontation with a nuclear armed power. That like these people who were comparing uh, Russian bots to Pearl Harbor and were convinced that the president of the, of, the, of the United States was was compromised by Russian compromise, including a P tape. I love how they're accusing us of uh, of, of being hysterical. That, that's really funny. But uh, yeah, look, I, 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 my only criticism or, or, or uh, sort of uh, rejoinder is to say that the incentives were even greater than I, than I think you're laying out for confrontation with Russia because it not only you know, incentivized progressives to take a hard line, but it pushed Trump to take a hard line. I mean, he, and, and there's proof that he did because of it. He came in calling for better relations with Russia. And he immediately was being called constantly uh, Putin's puppet. He's under investigation. And then what happens in early 2017? He, you know, he had initially talked about pulling out of Syria and abandoning regime change in Syria. Then what happens? There is this allegation of a chemical attack in Syria in Khan Sheikhoun. And, you know, I, I personally think that was an outright deception carried out by sectarian death squads there. But regardless, Trump faces all these pressures to bomb. And he does. He bombs Syria, which is a move that... Obama didn't do in response to previous allegations of chemical attacks. And then you have one of Trump's kids, I think it was either Don Jr. or Eric, saying, see, this proves that our father is not beholden to Russia because, of course, Syria was a key ally of Russia. And uh, on and on and on. Same thing. Same, with, it's the same with uh, giving lethal arms to Ukraine. Exactly. He's, he's tougher on Russia than Obama was. That was exactly. the line to kind of re refute this domestic allegation that he was somehow collusively you know, enthralled to Russia. Yeah. And then the incentives, too, were for progressives was not only to you know, encourage confrontation with, with Russia. It was to look away every time Trump's hawkish administration 
dangerously escalated tensions with Russia. So, you know, just to illustrate, we heard countless hours on cable news and countless column space in the New York Times and Washington Post about whether Trump is compromised by Russia, by this or that, when, of course, there was nothing there. How many times have we read about how Trump was tearing up the INF Treaty, which is, you know, this critical Cold War pact between Gorbachev and Reagan that eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons? And which um, is being cited right now by Putin and other yes. Russian government officials as evidence, you know, understandably enough, of the untrustworthiness of yes. U.S. guarantees. Yes, yes, yes. But we couldn't talk about that because acknowledging that Trump was dangerously escalating tensions with Russia with his actual policies – that was inconvenient to this narrative that he was. Yeah, I remember, remember the talking point where, where like, if you tried to kind of raise this this concept, you were always kind of inundated with people saying, "Name, name at least three uh, examples <laughs> of how Trump is uh, aggressive against Russia," rather than kind of yeah. kowtowing to them. And then you'd name the examples, and it just like wouldn't make any any progress, right? No, you no. know, it didn't matter that Trump tried to facilitate a coup. In Venezuela, which is like the chief ally of Russia in the Western Hemisphere, you know, it didn't matter that he bombed Syria on multiple occasions. The pipeline didn't matter. On and on and on. Like it was, it was like a like an an article of faith that you just couldn't rebut. Um, And so, you know that that was one of the the many incentives that led to this point where you know. Biden then had to pledge in his own campaign in 2020 to be even more aggressive than Trump had been. Yes. yes. And and so now you have this and, and then even now with the Republicans, you have this kind of, uh, bizarre, uh, you know, funhouse mirror thing where they're accusing. I even saw Daryl Issa, the congressman from Republican congressman from California on Fox News today, like giving all the standard cliches about how Biden is not now aggressive enough and you know he's appeasing and it's just like neville chamberlain i mean they these people only know one historical analogy and it always somehow applies to whatever's happened contemporaneously um so you know it 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 all kind of served to create this blinkered situation that we're in now where you know the only politically viable tactic is you know as hardline as possible confrontation against russia lest you be accused of a capitulator or like a colluder Michael, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but James Jeffrey, who was Trump's envoy to, for Syria, okay? Do you want to know what he said about his job? He said, my job is to make Syria a quagmire for the Russians. <laughs> that's, that's what he said his yeah. job was. My job is to get a quagmire for the Russians. And, and, that, and, that's what the, and that's what they were doing everywhere they could around the world. But it didn't matter because it, it just it wasn't conducive to the narrative that Trump was really taking his orders from Putin. And if you remember this, even on January 6th, the very end of Trump's administration, um, you know, he, he's like torn up the INF treaty. He's almost about to kill the New START treaty, which Biden rescued like in the first his first active office because it was about to expire because of Trump. Uh, as you say, he launched a coup in Venezuela. And still on January 6th, right afterwards, Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton on Hillary Clinton's podcast, they're speculating – about whether or not Trump spoke to Putin on By the, the day way, of the, January the term, 6th. <laughs> the term Hillary Clinton's podcast sends a shiver down my spine. <laughs> but they're speculating. They, they, uh, they're asking, like, they're, they're wondering. They're like, we want to know. I don't know for sure. I don't know. But did Trump speak to Putin on the day of January 6th? And if so, what did Putin tell him? Suggesting that, of course, Putin was giving, still giving Trump in his last weeks in office, like, orders to launch a, a insurrection. Yeah, yeah, that's plausible. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, look, you know, let, me, let me say one more thing. Just let, we have yeah. not sufficiently taken stock of how ridiculous that whole impeachment thing was of Trump. And at the time, you and I were both making fun of it, and we wrote about it, and we were warning about how dangerous, how, dang, how dangerous it was, how emboldening the views of Alexander Vidman and um, uh, uh, William, Taylor, William, William Taylor, George Kent, call, all these people, yeah. William, William Taylor, who had accused Obama of appeasement because Obama wouldn't send more weapons to Ukraine because he didn't want to arm neo-Nazis. These people were venerated as heroes, and we warned at the time that – in and not just heroes, right? Like heroes of the Democratic Party's cause, heroes of yes. like the progressive priority of taking it to Trump. Yes, and Adam Schiff saying on the, during the impeachment, saying uh, the the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we fight Russia over there and don't have to fight them over here. Meaning that if if the U.S. wasn't funding a proxy war in Ukraine, then Russia would be invading the U.S. via Alaska, I suppose. It, it was just insane, and people tried to pretend as if, no, this was really about Trump using his office to compel an investigation of the Bidens in Ukraine. But the problem with that was twofold. One, there was never any evidence at all that Trump freezing these weapons had anything to do with his demands for a, an investigation of Biden in Ukraine. There was nothing. The Ukrainians said they never saw any linkage at all, and no U.S. officials uh, ever relayed any kind of linkage whatsoever. The only witness who came close was this guy, Son, Gordon Sondland, if you remember him. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Was, and he said that it was his presumption that there was a link between the weapons freeze and trying to compel an investigation, but that no one ever told him that there was. And he just kind of presumed that based on the absence of, in his view, any other explanation. But really what was actually happening was – and John Bolton confirmed this in his book – Trump was pissed off that NATO wasn't wasn't spending more on the money for you on weapons for Ukraine, and he wanted them to chip in. That's what John Bolton wrote in his book. And people got so were so uh, just consumed with anything that could be deemed to be anti-Trump when, that they wouldn't look at the facts and they wouldn't look at the consequences of the hawkish worldview that they were emboldening. And this and and the Ukraine crisis right now is a direct result of that. And another direct result, by the way, of that whole impeachment thing was Trump ending it with the highest uh, approval ratings of his presidency. If you look at the end of the impeachment trial, that's right, what right, Trump yeah. had. So what a, what a fantastic And then that success. was right before COVID started. And, and yes. And well, and that's, what's, that's what saved the Democrats because if not for COVID, then you would have had Democrats spending their entire time of Trump's presidency first yelling about a Trump-Russia conspiracy that didn't exist. And then when that failed trying to impeach him over a weapons pause to Ukraine. And I'm sorry, that messaging I don't think resonated with the voters that the Democrats needed to reach to win the election. And I think if not for COVID and Trump's handling of that, you would have seen a Trump re-election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were so many just very bizarre aspects to that whole first impeachment episode that were criminally underanalyzed at the time um, because it was the first impeachment in U.S. history that was focused on foreign policy and a number of things that were asserted in the articles of impeachment that were drafted and passed by the house was that trump had quote endangered our lives and those of our uh, our allies uh in the words of the authors of this impeachment report that was supplementary material yeah because they they didn't actually accuse outright trump of treason in the articles 
of impeachment that were formally passed, but in the supplementary material, they made it clear that they were, that they were accusing him of treason. Trump was basically impeached for committing treason. And how did he commit treason? Well, by freezing these shipments of, you know, with weaponry to Ukraine. And, you know, the definition of treason entails that you're abetting an enemy of the U.S., right? So who is the enemy in this scenario? Obviously, Russia. So what, what happened effectively through this impeachment, like codified in terms of like the very kind of fundamental structures of U.S. government, because that was that's what impeachment does. It kind of sets a very unique precedent, given how rare, rarely it's utilized. That Russia, you know, at the very fiber of the government's being, is an eternal enemy. You know, not that it hadn't been over the course of the Cold War and stuff, but the, the latest iteration of Russia was now this kind of existential enemy to the U.S. And this was all done in service of, of impeaching Trump. And so, you know, that that's why it, it be, it be uh, you know, stuff like sending arms to Ukraine in perpetuity becomes such an unquestionable orthodoxy. So, yeah, I mean, I think that because th- that was such a sort of convoluted episode and the details were so sketchy and there was a ton of material put out like – I remember a couple of like two or three days before the impeachment vote in the House, the Democrats dumped this entire report with a huge amount of citations and stuff, which the media had no chance of reading. I mean, I actually, because I'm crazy, stayed up and read it. And it had this really inflammatory language that has really uh, uh, dire implications for foreign policy if it were to be adopted as precedent, which in a way it was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's definitely another kind of forerunner of what we're seeing now and like the, and the Democrats, you know, larger attitude, which is a sea change from what Obama did in, uh, when he was president. Now, Obama's position circa like 2014 is, is considered fringe in the, in the Democratic Party, you know, really. And it's like worthy of being, you know, firmly ostracized as a member in good standing. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's such a mess. It's so funny. And uh, again, it just, I remember at the time, you know, and, and look, I, I, uh, I'm sorry to do this of, you know, sort of doing like a, a victory lap. Like we've been on this victory lap for, I don't know, at least three years running now, ever since the Mueller report. I think we've so, taken so many laps that like we've come around the end of the, of the race and like maybe are falling off the, off the track. By the way, speak of which, Michael, you, you know, Recently, if, when I was doing something about CrowdStrike, uh, the, the DNC contractor that first that really kicked off Russiagate by accusing Russia of hacking the DNC. By the way, which there is a Ukraine tie, which I can talk about if you want. But, but anyway, I, I went back and I was just doing some research. And I saw you from the very beginning flagged the fact that CrowdStrike was being used by the FBI to make these allegations against Russia and that they were a Democratic Party contractor. So you were actually one of the original people who... Who, who pointed out something that became yeah. very, very critical to this whole, this really, this whole Russiagate thing? Because, of course, many years later, you know, in May 2020, after Russiagate was was over, or at least after the Mueller investigation was over, it came out that CrowdStrike had privately admitted that they had no evidence that actually Russian hackers had taken anything from the DNC. And I just, you know, it, it was just, it, it speaks to the importance of independent journalists like you who flag from the start this really shady. Um, thing going on where a Democratic Party contractor working for the Clinton campaign was being used by the FBI to make the allegation that triggered off the entire Russiagate episode. Yeah, you know, I actually wrote about that. It was in 2017 for for the Young Turks back uh, during that exciting period of my life. (laughs) And, and, um, 
Yeah, you know, looking just through some of like the U.S. Uh, spending, uh, U.S. like federal government spending databases, I found out that the FBI had a con- an active contract with CrowdStrike at the time that it was making these sort of assessments as to the providence of Russian hacking, and that and that was just not not reported yeah. anywhere. Like I even went so far as to try to go to the headquarters of CrowdStrike in um, Orange County, California. To like see if I could talk to somebody about it. And we did like a video segment all the time. And of course, like I couldn't get anybody. But, you know, I went there, you know, just to see like the physical location of CrowdStrike. And, uh, you know, it just didn't get picked up on anybody because, you know, wh- who cares that CrowdStrike has this like overt conflict of interest with the federal <laughs> government as like relying on it as a supposed objected arbiter of like attribution. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was stuff like that. There were red flags like that that were should have been easily observable to a lot of people who were following this uh, at the time, but, you know, for a whole variety of reasons that we've t- discussed before, chose to ignore it. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's take some uh, callers now. They've been waiting patiently. Um, let's go to Kosha. hope I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, you have to unmute. Yep, there you go. Hello. Good afternoon, Michael. Um, it's pronounced Hi. Kusha, and it's a, it's a pleasure, a great pleasure to be on your platform for the first time. And it's good to finally be in dialogue once again with Aaron, who I've had the uh, pleasure of speaking with a number of times before. Well, welcome, yeah, thank you. What's your comment or question? Sure. So both today and yesterday on his own call-in program, Aaron mentioned the Jake Sullivan email to Hillary Clinton about al-Qaeda being on the side of the U.S. and Syria, which Aaron indeed emphasizes often for good reason. And a similar admission I want to bring up is one that Clinton herself who Michael mentioned in this episode, made when she essentially described the Taliban as blowback caused by the U.S. Blowback that started from the billion-dollar CIA terrorist financing campaign Operation Cyclone, pushed heavily uh, from the Carter administration, especially Zbigniew Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, since that's a position you uh, both discussed today. I think there's a very relevant tie-in that Aaron was trying to get to on his program yesterday, but I don't think we had the fortune of hearing which is what the Biden administration cruelly decided it's going to do with $7 billion that it took from the Afghan government. And I believe that whether it, the money was going to be in the hands of the corrupt kleptocrats of Ashraf Ghani, and previously before that was Hamid Karzai, or the viciously murderous Taliban terrorists, those billions were never going to seriously hit the Afghan people's pockets. But still, though every penny belongs to the common Afghan people and deserves to go to causes that benefit them directly for their uniquely awful misery. And so Clinton said something that I really want to share. Hillary Clinton said something about this. And I think it's very similar to what Aaron mentions very regularly. He hammers, and again, it's good for me especially to keep that in mind as well, about the Taliban and the Afghan Mujahideen. And she said in a tweet that was put out by Dick McIntosh on September 4, 2021, it's a video capturing a clip of her saying, quote, we had helped to create the problem we're now fighting because when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we had this brilliant idea that we're going to come to Pakistan, create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Singer missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan, end quote. And later she says, quote, the people we're fighting today, we were supporting the fight against the Soviets, end quote. So that, in that being in mind, what I'd like to know is that on the one hand, many self-described anti-imperialists similarly view the Islamic Republic as this stronghold anti-imperialist oasis in the Middle East. Yet on the other hand, Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated by Trump around January 3rd of 2020, 
and the Islamic Republic not only rhetorically supported the Bush-Cheney invasion of Afghanistan, but also militarily and logistically enabled and partook in it. There's the MIT Center for International Studies. Okay, Kusha, Kusha, what's your I'm question? I'm about to get the question, Aaron. Please let me finish it, please. No, because uh, okay, and, because our focus today is on Ukraine. Yeah. And, I mean, and do, so you, do, you, do you have a tie-in with Ukraine here? I mean, I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not yeah. disputing the legitimacy of your question, but sort of... But, yeah, I mean, this is a tie into war in general because the, the title of your episode, as I was preparing for it, was World War Three, And I think that the Islamic Republic, its relations with Russia and whatnot, are a very big element of a World War Three element. So what I want to ask here is, do you agree your view on the Islamic Republic in its activity, involvement, not just in Afghanistan, but in the Middle East in general, that this does not fit this anti-imperialist model, which is often posited for those countries that are enemies of the United States government. Um, and I want to just finish with this quote and then hear both your reflections on it from the MIT Center for International Studies article published by Barnett Rubin and Sarah Batman Glitch that, quote, after 9-11, despite some jockeying for relative advantage, Russia, Iran, India and the United States ultimately cooperated to defeat the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and to establish the new Afghan government. Not only did Iran cooperate with the United States, Russia actively helped it establish support bases in Central Asia. And- okay, Kusha, I got it. So I know you have a particular focus on Iran. We didn't come here today to talk about Iran. I, I don't personally put it on the same I, I, rem- and I, I, re- I removed him not as a punishment just because you know, we want to move things along. But yeah. go ahead. Adam, well, I, you know, yeah, I, I just don't see the relevance to uh, Ukraine. And so I, that's what I want to keep the focus on, on today. Is, and... Um, I, uh, I also don't personally don't put Iran on the same level as a global actor as I do the U.S., which has military bases around the world and far more power and far more influence over not just Ukraine, but also Afghanistan as well. I, I wouldn't equate what the, what the U.S. did in Afghanistan to what Iran has done in Afghanistan. Um, so that's my take on that. Yeah, like I, I do think that's a bit of an off-topic remark, not that it's necessarily uh, unwarranted or, you know, illegitimate, but, you know, the reason that I named this World War Three, uh, put World War Three in the title of this, yeah, it's a bit provocative. I'm not giving three cheers for World War Three, literally. Um, but because, you know, we have a current scenario that has the potential for escalating um, as it relates to Ukraine, so, you know, the around stuff will probably have to, have to wait. Um, all right, let's go to... Tim. Tim. Hi there. Can you hear me? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's working. That's the easiest, easiest intro ever. Um, so I wanted to, Michael Hudson put out a really good piece yesterday. Uh, and this stuff is probably, this take is probably not new to you, but you know, it's, it's, helpful, I think, really to zoom out a little bit and, and squint and blurt. Uh, and what his point was is, you know, the, you need to see this in the context of a, of a 70-year-long kind of um, dominance of uh, American power in Europe. And, you know, what that means is really basically this is about Germany... Well, they're, sorry, they're after me again. It's uh, yeah, the Russians. It's, yeah, it's r- Russian attack helicopters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, are you in the Are you in the Donbass by any? <laughs> I wish. Um, but 
you know, what the, the point is that, you know, if you, if you squint and blurt really hard, you go back to Lord Easley's point about NATO. Why does NATO exist? NATO exists to make, make sure the, uh, the U.S. stays in, Germany stays down, and the Russians stay out, right? And the, so what that means in this context is that Ukraine is being used as a way of disciplining West, Euro, West Europeans to do what the Americans want, which is basically not uh, ally themselves with Russian resources. And the, the nightmare scenario is Germany with its industrial base and uh, allying with Russia and its um, resource base, because that would make the Americans irrelevant, right? And that's why Ukraine has been turned into this tar baby on, uh, on Russia's border um, in order to, you know, goad the Russians into uh, attacking, uh, or sorry, defending the Donbass and defending Russian-speaking and Russian-ethnic minorities, which are, you know, is, I can't remember the percentage at this point, but obviously, let's say roughly 30% of the population, so that um, they can discipline the West Western Europeans into um, doing, you know, basically making Russia a toxic, uh, you know, a toxic partner, basically. Yeah. Right? All right, I think, think we got it. Uh, Aaron, any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, uh, it all makes sense to me. Um, the thought, as I said before, the idea of Russia being further integrated with Europe has been um, an outcome that U.S. planners have been trying to prevent for a long time. They just don't want it. There was a time when uh, Putin talked about Russia joining yeah. NATO back when he first was uh, was in power. and But the U.S. didn't want that because... Um, it needs enemies to justify its military expenditures. And it just has this entrenched Cold War view of Russia as being the enemy. And so no peace or no accommodation with it is, is, is possible within that context. And also, like, without Russia as the purported adversary, NATO loses a lot of its rationale to even exist and a lot of its rationale for continuing to maintain its you know, contracts and to acquire you know, provisions and to have its fancy summits and to kind of collectively project this image of sort of a united Western front. So I, I think there is sort of an, uh, maybe a, even a subconscious in a lot of ways incentive uh, to maintain Russia as this sort of counterpoint for justification of NATO to even continue existing, which is really, even though it's become really uh, anachronistic, um, this idea that you know it still has the same utility that it might have post World War II, I think, is losing a lot of credence. And yeah, I mean, there was a time when it was floated that Russia could itself join NATO, but that was scuttled, I think, most resolutely in 2008 when the Bush administration, you know, put the, together this document uh, declaring that NATO would expand, kind of interminably eastward, including into Ukraine. And that, you know, is something that obviously Russia is keenly aware of and it affected their, their calculations on this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's, you know, it's really an extension of, of U.S. hegemony. I mean, NATO is a, an alliance that's headed by 
the U.S. and you know that that often really does explain the core of so much of what the U.S. does. So, yeah. Robert Gates in his memoir, someone recently tweeted out an excerpt of it. Robert Gates, the former Defense Secretary, he writes in his memoir that basically Dick Cheney talked about not just ending the Soviet Union, but after that, yeah. breaking up Russia because he didn't want Russia to threaten the world ever again, and that. You know, that's that's a euphemism for being a deterrent to U.S. hegemony. And so that's been a goal. And that's been I mean, Cheney, by the way, was so uh, such a fervent believer in that, that in 2008, the same year that they, the Bush administration endorsed uh, NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. Cheney also went behind the back of his Bush administration colleagues and basically encouraged Georgia, Shakisvili, to launch this offensive against this breakaway region of South Ossetia, which identified with with Russia. He, Cheney actually egged that on uh, and basically gave Shakisvili this impression that the U.S. would have his back, even though other Bush administration officials were telling him, no, we, if you start a war, we're not going to come defend you. We're not going to cause World War III with Russia. But Shakisvili listened to Cheney, and he did launch the offensive, and that ended disastrously for him. So it's just, I mean, this really comes down to people like Dick Cheney, uh, whose legacy lives on, uh, you know, with Victoria Nuland, who I believe worked for Cheney. Yes, she did. Victoria Newland worked for Dick Cheney uh, and has carried on his legacy up till today under Biden. It's just it's insane. And you know, John McCain's legacy lives on. When he, in two thousand eight, yes. that was you know when Russia you know had the in the, the Russia Georgia conflict broke out. McCain was lambasted by Democrats for making the melodramatic statement that we are all Georgians now. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that? I mean, he actually went back and rewatched that clip. It was McCain at like a campaign rally. You know, he's saying, listen, my friends, you know, freedom still needs to be defended, even though we thought we put to put to put to rest all the old like Cold War, you know, problems. And when he said that, you know, he was McCain was mocked. I mean, because it was like a ridiculously hawkish statement about a country that most Americans had no idea even existed. They probably misunderstood him and thought he was talking about the state of Georgia for the most part. Um, And yet, you know, McCain's kind of McCain, who is this uber hawk who had never found a country that he didn't want to invade. uh, You know, his mentality on this has really become sort of transmuted into the full spectrum of the mainstream, including the, the Democrats who had, had once kind of maligned him. Just like in 2012, infamously Obama mocked Romney for calling Russia the U.S.'s uh, number one geo- geopolitical foe, and that's become negated over the years as well. So it's sort of interesting yeah. how this stuff evolves, and now you know Democrats are sort of inter- uh, all the way in their interchangeability with uh, previous iterations of Republican hawkishness. On Russia, and, and going back to your point about domestic politics influencing foreign policy, I mean, when Trump insulted McCain on the campaign trail, called him a, you know, basically made fun of him for getting caught in Vietnam. Yeah, I captured. like I, I like people who aren't captured. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of Trump's I, funniest lines, by the way. It, it was, it was. I mean, that had a huge impact, I think, on you know emboldening this neocon backlash to Trump and trying to pressure him into adopting ultimately a McCain foreign policy and to yeah, a large yeah. extent they succeeded and that's why the McCain funeral or the McCain like it was like a, a eight day kind of funeral oh God, procession yeah. <laughs> yeah. remember that I mean, <laughs> yeah. that kind of functioned as like because of you know, Trump didn't go and you know Trump was sort of excluded 
And that sort of functioned as an affirmation of McCain's worldview as yes. the sort of means by which to contain Trump or like the, the opposition to Trump. And of course, that meant it became a progressive, you know, priority and a progressive uh, virtue. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, McCain, McCain, McCain's legacy still actually uh, actually uh, reverberates pretty, pretty loudly now. Um, you know, we're going to go we're going to go to a couple more people. But, you know, quick point, Aaron, that I, I'm curious for your opinion on uh, on the issue of you know, I think you see in, on on the American right kind of growing skepticism, even if it's not reflected in Republican elected officials, which it's largely not. I mean, overwhelmingly, when Republicans give a statement about the current Ukraine situation, whether on TV or in in, uh, in Congress or something, they'll have a criticism of Biden. And it's always that he's an appeaser, or that he's not doing enough or he's, you know, basically capitulating to Putin, whatever. So that's sort of the more old timey Republican view that's aligned, you know, classically with McCain. But you do see uh, growing skepticism, I would say, like on the more sort of grassroots right um, toward uh, U.S. involvement in Ukraine in any respect. They're saying, you know, this is a country on the other side of the world. Why do we even care? Uh, sort of a more kind of, I guess, quintessentially, you know, they, it's maligned as isolationism. But, you know, in my mind, isolationism would be a lot preferable to like the excessive uh, activity of U.S. foreign policy for the most part. Um but, you know, one thing they'll say is, you know, look, we shouldn't care about Ukraine. We should be focusing on China. Or like Russia is irrelevant now. We should all be focusing our ire on China. And, you know, even though Taiwan is also on the other side of the world, you know, it would be great to intervene, you know, militarily to prevent the Chinese from taking over Taiwan because we have, like, dependence on their semiconductor production or something. So uh, what, what do you think about this kind of emerging school of thought, you know, on segments of the right, which says, you know, we're against this whole Ukraine stuff, but only because we want to kind of husband our resources to really take it to China. Well, look, it speaks to me the dangers of the U.S. left, the, the professional uh, political left, seeding anti-war sentiment when it comes to Russia to the right. I mean, that's what's been happening slowly since 2016, where if you question the utility of NATO, if you call for better relations with Russia, then that's somehow um, heresy, and our heroes are supposed to be the FBI and the CIA. But that's, that's been the dynamic that, that sort of has been necessitated by embracing the Russiagate mentality. And it means that people on the right who are driven by this contempt for China and want to see the U.S. diverting its resources to China if they're going to they're going to seize the mantle and they're going to be able to appeal to people who can see the dangers of the US being in confrontation with another nuclear power in in Russia so um look i i don't like it, <laughs> it, it it's it, it's worrying to me because i i'm just as much against you know a cold war with china as i am against a a, a cold war with russia i don't think that the stuff serves anybody except yeah. for warhawks and if you know, if even if you consider yourself on the right or libertarian or, or whatever, and like one of your grievances now has to do with an increasing recognition of the perverse influence of the military-industrial complex, and like that's why you think you're against U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Well, I mean, the military-industrial complex is going to have an even bigger boondoggle if the U.S. engages in kind of like an all-out 
quote unquote confrontation with China, whether it's over Ukraine or the South China or over Taiwan or the South China Sea or whatever else. So you know, I, th- I would kind of urge people to be a little bit more consistent in their application and principle there. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think it's been rendered void in a way because Putin and Xi are all ever more closely aligned. I mean, Xi actually, you know, when you know over the course of the trade war that Trump launched against China, you know, that you saw more and more movement between China and Russia to kind of consolidate and to put put forward a united front. And Xi at one point even described Putin as his quote best friend. Yeah, I know. I'd love to see those, you know, play dates. Um, and you know, you know that he was his featured. Putin was his featured guest at the Olympic opening ceremony last week. And as I said, they put out this very lengthy statement, basically showing solidarity with one another. They have increased kind of military and economic uh, interoperability. So you know, it's it, it, it's less and less feasible that you can fight one cold war and not the other, right? I mean, there's going to be uh, ramifications for. China and Russia, whether you want to target one or the other. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. my preliminary look, if you're, take on that. If you're a American and you're mad about China's economic growth and it's you know it's it's threatening U.S. supremacy that way, then you know blame U.S. corporations that have chosen to outsource so much of their operations to China. I mean, no one forced them to do that. They they chose to do that, and put you can put pressure on them if you want to, if that's your concern. But to try to encourage a Cold War with China by sanctioning it, encouraging a pivot to Asia as Obama wanted to do. I mean, that's just that's just the same thing, except in a different country. Yep. All right. Let's go to another caller here uh, for Revolution, whose first name I don't know, but who I've interacted on here before with. Hey, Michael. Hey, Aaron. How are you guys today? Good. Hey, for Revolution. How you doing? I'm well. How are you, Aaron? Oh, Chris. I see. For Chris. Yeah. Gotcha. You're Chris Chris. for Revolution. Gotcha. Gotcha. How you doing? Hey guys. Hey, um, I just tuned in. I missed kind of the first hour or so of, of this. It's all right. Uh, you didn't miss much. Of this, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm just hoping my We negotiated. No, we negotiated peace. Uh, I represented Russia and uh, Michael represented Ukraine, and we've come up with an yeah, agreement. We, to we, solve we the brokered a peace deal who against our Biden? Twitter enemies. <laughs> who was Biden in there? I just want to know, like, what role he It was played. me. It was, it was me. I just kind of babbled. <laughs> That's all you have to do to, to be Joe. <laughs> hey, um, so you're just bringing up China, and you know I find it really interesting that there's so much discussion of like having conflict with you know other nuclear powers, um, and that kind of you know scares me. I don't. It just takes one person making or inter- even just interpreting something wrong for us to have really a catastrophic outcome. And I don't know if I just I don't know if I trust the actors in this. I don't think China is going to do that. And to go to something you just said, Aaron, and blaming U.S. corporations for for the power that China's had, you know, we we need to have better policies on that stuff and not allow corporations to to do that. And you know, something that we saw during COVID is that we need to have more production here in the U.S. And um, especially, you know, for for uh, PPE stuff, but, um, you know, across the board, electronics and everything. And so I just don't see what the combativeness uh, 
what the utility is. I mean, you know, I'm just somebody who thinks collaboration is better than confrontation. And, but I don't see what getting, especially with Russia. I mean, we're just tried to bully Russia for a long time. Putin's not somebody who's really interested in taking that. And that's, I think a large part of why we are where we are with them. And then obviously the Russia gate stuff is influenced, uh, Democrats into, uh, into lying themselves into thinking Russia is this big, uh, scary entity that they've turned it into, which I don't see it that way. And I, I believe you guys don't either. Um, but I guess my question is, why is this, why does this keep happening? Is this just, you know, the MIC pushing war again? And, and cause you know, we've cut back a little bit on war. I know we still have just did that drone, uh, bombing of of uh, of the ISIS leader, you know, a few weeks ago in Syria or a week or two ago. But what? Why does this confrontation stuff just keep happening? What's you guys' interpretation of that? Is it just? I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, you, you you might be familiar with a very infamous quote of uh, Madeleine Albright from the '90s, where she said, um, paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. What's, what good is having such a superb military if you can't use it? So that was her argument for why, you know, the mere existence of this sprawling kind of military slash national security apparatus kind of inherently justifies its use. So that's why I think over and over again, you see these different moves toward advocating for the deployment of military force or the provision of weaponry or the kind of dispatchment of different intelligence services to these a vast array of countries because it, it exists and it's like a self-perpetuating engine. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. has a giant, giant uh, defense industrial base that is really commercially crucial to the economy and has a lot of influence on politicians and, you know, that's just the kind of economic reality. I mean, if you ever have the opportunity, I would recommend going to a defense industry kind of conference, which I, which I have. <laughs> and there are almost no journalists there other than like the trade industry journalists, like the defense trade publications send people. But other than that, like you ha- you'd have hardly any idea that they exist. And they're always tr- coming up with, quote, innovations for how their services can be applied to different arenas. Like I went to the first one that had been um, done since COVID. This was in August of last year. And it was like a chemical warfare themed conference. And, you know, you have uh, military person, active duty military senior officials. They're kind of co-mingling with the commercial sector and they do that as a matter of like national security imperative in their mind. Like they don't think that there should be any barrier between the military and between the commercial sector. They think that they need to combine to maximize U.S. kind of might. And, you know, at that time they were talking largely about how COVID was like a big opportunity to launch new kind of anti-biological biological warfare initiatives and how it was a huge profit, um, huge untapped profit sector. Um, but, oh, it's just stuff like that is constant because this industry exists and, you know, it has shareholders and it has 
such a close relationship with the actual mechanics of governance where you have, you know, retired generals, the second they leave the uh, leave active duty, what do they do? I mean, they go and sit on these boards. So it's just a behemoth right. that I think is always kind of lurching toward its next initiative. And, you know, whether it's Ukraine or, ta- or Taiwan or whatever comes up next, you know, it's, it, it just always needs to be fed. doesn't mean that every specific kind of like policy objective is 100% dictated by that kind of naked commercial incentive, but it's always there beneath the surface and it's always kind of like uh, a self-evident justification for anything that these kind of players want to do. Well, I'll, let me just say yeah, this quickly, to, that right. uh, in the... Um, in the late 1990s, when Bill Clinton made the great decision to expand NATO further, um, Congress was subjected to a huge lobbying blitz from the arms industry. Record setting, I think, the most lobbying, at least ever up until that point, the most ever spent. And leading the charge was a group called the Committee to Expand NATO. And the head of the Committee to Expand NATO was a guy named Bruce Jackson. And that wasn't his only job. By day, Bruce Jackson was the vice president for strategic planning of Lockheed Martin. And um, the funniest thing was the Times at the time interviewed him, Jeff Gerth and Tim Weiner at the Times. This is like 1997, 1998. And uh, Jackson told them, like, with, with a straight face, that his job at Lockheed Martin had nothing to do with his passion for expanding NATO, that they were totally separate. Uh, and there's more on this in a great new book by Andrew Coburn of Harper's Magazine called Spoils of War, which is all about the military-industrial complex. But, I mean, that just to me says it all right there, that the, despite his, his denials, the head of uh, – or despite his denials that, that his job had, had any motive and his zeal for expanding NATO, the head of the Committee to Expand NATO happens to be a top executive at Lockheed Martin, which would be among the, the companies – that would stand to make a lot of money off of expanding NATO. Yeah, which, it's just it's just it a, it, it's just a coincidence, though. It's like if the, if the Lockheed Martin official also has an interest in you know um, making those toy ships in a bottle, like it's just a hobby. It's just yeah, it's, sure. it's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> if he's into like dominoes. All right, uh, thank thank you, Chris. We're going to go to the next caller. Sorry to cut you off, but we're going to go for uh, two more and then uh, wrap up because rapid wrap. Ar- Aaron has some serious business to attend to as he gets ready to watch the Super Bowl, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Pete. Uh, yeah, so I guess I was curious what you guys see as sort of the way forward that doesn't lead to a conflict. I've seen a couple of people float the idea. I think Tulsi Gabbard, a clip of her saying that all the U.S. has to do is tell Russia, you know, Ukraine's not going to join NATO um, and that would just resolve this whole thing. Do you think it's that simple or do you think there's more at play here? Because to me, it seems like there's more of like an economic angle that Russia's wants economic control over its neighbors. And it just, it's not just about NATO. Well, I mean, g- giving that assurance at the very least couldn't hurt because everybody who's in the know on this seems to acknowledge that Ukraine joining NATO is not even in the cards. So why is the U.S. so ideologically, uh, fervently committed to maintaining the possibility that Russia could join NATO? Um, it's not an infringement on NATO's sovereignty to say that, or on Ukraine's sovereignty, rather, just for NATO to say that Ukraine will not be admitted as a member. Uh, and yet, you know, that is so verboten to even contemplate uh, amongst a lot of people that it's just not even entertained. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, also just a quick aside on, on Tulsi. You know, one of the reasons why I was drawn to her candidacy in 2020 is because she was made as one of her core themes opposition to new Cold War with both China and Russia. And, you know, that was not something that was really uh, embraced very much in the Democratic Party or any party, really. Uh, and yet, as we see now, it, it's one of the major issues that we all have to sort of orient ourselves around. So if there had been more attention to how the, a, a, a multi-front Cold War was sort of escalating, you know, maybe situations like the one we're in now could be avoided. But, you know, it is... It would giving that guarantee suffice for Russia? I don't know, but that's what Putin and his top officials are saying that they desire, and it's just not being um, entertained as as a possibility. So you know, I don't see how it could hurt, other than kind of ma- maintaining fidelity to this sort of ideological precept that NATO could, if it wanted to, enlarge into Ukraine. So. My internet cut out for the end of Pete's question and the beginning of your answer, Michael, so I didn't hear everything. But um, on the question of why doesn't Biden just uh, say that Ukraine won't join NATO, they just, even though Biden agrees that Ukraine won't join NATO and everyone knows that Ukraine won't join NATO because it's too divided and corrupt, he's still not going to say it because they just can't countenance giving this kind of ideological win to Russia because, again, they're all unreconstructed cold warriors. That's who occupies the White House in Washington. So just in the same way that like a mafia don can't show any kind of perceived weakness by, by, by giving up any concessions to his, to his enemies, I, I think it's the same thing when it comes to Ukraine and NATO. But I do think if they want diplomacy, if, if they do, then they'll find a way to basically leave it ambiguous and say that you know Ukraine won't join for a certain period of time, whether it's 10 or 20 years. I mean, these are things that some people in the Biden camp have already signaled that they agree with anyway. So that won't be hard. But the question is, do they want an off-ramp? Do they want diplomacy? Or are they set on doing something that could justify them canceling the Nord Stream 2 pipeline by sanctioning Russia further and, and provoking uh, more conflict inside Ukraine? Um, I wouldn't rule that out as, as that being their goal here. So it's, it's the question of if, they want it, if the U.S. wants an off-ramp, there is one. It wouldn't be difficult. It's not as if Russia is going to go to is going to go to war if uh, the U.S. won't pledge to take NATO membership off the table. I just don't see them invading Ukraine because of that. Because if they really wanted to end the Ukraine war, Russia could have done that at any time in the last eight years, and they could have used their air force, which they haven't. Their support for the Ukrainian militants has been pretty low grade. It's like mostly small arms. So um, it's a question of what the U.S. goal is, and that's just. Uh, I don't know. And I, what I hope is there are competing factions inside the Biden administration and that it's not just Victoria Nuland and her kind that are driving policy. Yeah, I got to do I got to think that there is a competing faction with at least some purchase within the Biden administration, even if they're not the most vocal, um, because it is true that Biden at least ostensibly took U.S. troops, quote unquote, off the table uh, for a deployment to Ukraine, you know, which is sort of nonsensical given that there are already U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. But it's at least an indication that a different line is being considered in a sense. But Michael, um, let me say this. Let me say this. Nobody is leaking at all. There are no sources inside. If you read the, the Washington Post, New York Times, there used to be people who would leak stuff. You know, For example, in Syria, 
there were officials who were really uncomfortable with the fact that the U.S. was on the same side as al-Qaeda, as I talked about earlier. And so you had people sometimes leaking stuff that was contrary to what the administration position was because they were uncomfortable with it. Back when Obama was going to bomb Syria after the supposed red line was triggered in 2013, officials leaked at the time that James Clapper had gone to Obama and said, actually, the intelligence is not there that Syria was guilty of this chemical attack, that it was not a slam dunk, which was a reference to the Iraq war. And I'm just saying for what it's worth, and this is not everything, but this time I just don't see sources like that inside the White House talking to the media. And maybe that's a reflection of the fact people are more scared of getting caught talking to the press. And maybe that doesn't reflect the fact that they're aren't people are in the White House who, sh- who share concerns, but it, at least publicly so far, I don't see very many signs of it. Yeah, and during the Trump administration, the national security apparatus was leaking like a sieve. I mean, oh, it was yeah. da- daily or multiple times daily. Yes. And there's a major contrast now, whether that's because maybe the media is less pers- uh, vigorously pursuing those leaks or just that there's yeah. less of an inclination to leak in general. I think it's maybe a combination of the two, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, it's true. I, w- I wouldn't put it past some of these correspondents to even get like leaks that are against the pro-war narrative and to choose, to, to choose not to publish them. Because and the only <laughs> leaks we're getting now is with this guy from PBS NewsHour I never even heard of. I mean, I guess yeah. no offense. But yesterday he has a le- leak saying was that it was yesterday, right? No, no, it was Friday. It was Friday. Yeah, yeah, it was Friday where he's saying you know according to Western officials, um, the U.S. government currently quote believes that Russia has made the decision to invade Ukraine. Like, that's the kind of leak we're getting now, which was then immediately kind of rebuffed by Sullivan at a press, press conference. But who knows, like, what coordination has happened there behind the scenes. Like, sometimes you want a leak to say one thing and then the administration to look, like, uh, comparatively calmer and more circumspect about the potential of an invasion, whatever the story is there. You know, we're not getting any leaks that kind of countervail the main line, which is that, you know, everything needs to be done to confront Russia within the U.S. government's power. Um, All right. Uh, Okay, so one last caller here, and then we'll relieve Aaron of his duties. CP. Uh, What's up, guys? This is Greg from Bremerton, Washington. Um, Can Can you turn down your TV? Oh shit! Yeah, I want to step outside. Sorry. So, uh, the hell are you watching, bro? This is uh, a big fan of FC Barcelona. Oh, okay. The Catalan Clasico going on right now. Anyways, f- f- far more important. Whatever the hell that is, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Quick question for you. So, what's your guys' take on the theory that um, Putin's main motivation and the massing troops around Ukraine is is really just to destabilize NATO rather than to Kind of write some historical injustice about Soviet territories like that. Um, well, I mean, it seems plausible. First of all, I hate this whole genre of poetry where it's this constant psychoanalysis of Putin. Like, I mean, very few of the people who engage in that mode of poetry have any direct insight whatsoever into Putin's brain, if anybody. And so, like, Day after day, you see this armchair, you know, it's like a therapeutic kind of nonsense. He's playing chess. He's playing chess. Yeah, or, you know, this is what he Putin wants, or this is what Putin, you know, is trying to achieve. You know, it's always just a bunch of hogwash for the most part. Um, but, yeah, at the same time, it is plausible to me that these 
buildups, which are, you know, objectively observable, if not necessarily unique, um, in the rough vicinity of Ukraine are used as being used as like a bargaining chip of some kind. I mean, just in the, in the same way, I mean, I, I started to do whataboutism, but, you know, as I asked in my Substack a few days ago, you know, what about the fact that the U.S. is constantly holding these large-scale military exercises in eastern Ukraine, including mm-hmm. in countries on the uh, Ukraine, Russian border? I mean, what about the fact that, you know, we, now you have, I saw, I was watching some of these Sunday shows today, and you have, you know, the national security correspondent gravely intoning that, you know, Russia doing drills in the Black Sea is more indication that they plan to invade soon. It's just like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But didn't the U.S. just engage in drills in the Black Sea in conjunction with NATO last year? Yeah, yeah, they did. And the interpretation of what that signifies is radically different. And it's not even covered at all, really, in U.S. media. So, I mean, that's maybe a... a, a, a variation on what about him, but it's something that ought to be considered more than it is, which is virtually never. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Putin clearly he has been si- signaling that he wants some sort of resolution to this open question of NATO expansion into Ukraine. I mean, he put out a very lengthy essay that you know was supposedly authored by him personally over the summer last year about the historical connection between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, there clearly is sort of a a buildup toward at least trying to achieve some measure of, again, resolution toward this, this conflict. So could it be that the troop buildups and the earth slash exercises are being used as leverage? Yeah, it's possible. Um, But at the same time, I don't really trust anyone who like goes on cable news in the U.S. and claims to have direct insight into the workings of Putin's brain? Aaron. Well, I don't know uh, if you've read what Scott Ritter has written about this. This uh, he Scott Ritter is a former U.N. weapons mm-hmm. inspector and a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, and basically he his argument and he's written about this at consortiumnews.com, which is a great website. Um, He's written that basically this maneuver by Putin to send troops to the border was essentially a trap for NATO. Uh, that basically to show NATO members and prospective NATO members that the U.S. will actually not have your back and to actually also show how divided NATO actually is because you have people mm-hmm. like – or you have countries like Germany and France that aren't on board with this U.S.-led saber rattling towards uh, Russia. And so the point of all this is to show that Europe needs a new security architecture and not one that's dominated by the U.S. And he makes a very convincing case. I just wonder if – you know, like you have to think about – if to what extent Putin is also responding to certain moves inside Ukraine. And I just wrote about this at my Substack because, you know, basically every answer, Michael or I have to promote our, our Substack as we're con- contractually uh, <laughs> obligated to. I'm just kidding. But, but, uh, but, I, but basically, there was a. I have, a, I have a Substack employee breathing down my neck right now. In my... <laughs> the, uh, there was a great article. There was an article in, in Time magazine called "The Untold Story of the Ukraine Crisis." Came out recently by a uh, writer named Simon Schuster, and I um, he reveals some really interesting things. That basically, there's a background to this Ukraine crisis that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, and it, it all comes down to the U.S. having, I think, just way too much influence in uh, Ukraine. Where basically, the um, just going back to the beginning of of the COVID pandemic. Okay, so. Uh, after Russia developed the, the, the Sputnik vaccine, 
in 2020. Russia offered to supply Ukraine with millions of doses of its vaccine free of charge. And this offer was brokered by a oligarch in Ukraine named Viktor Medvedchuk, who's a who's a pro-Russian leader, but the head of uh, Ukraine's mm-hmm. largest opposition party. They have the most seats in parliament. So Medvedchuk brought this back to Zelensky. And time reports that not only did Zelensky reject this offer, but the State Department rejected it as well. And it's this. This is left unexplored. But it's like, why is the State Department having a say in Ukraine's vaccine policy, whether or not they accept vaccines from their neighbor of Russia? So then, what happened after that is um, that and I'm going to quote now from Time Magazine: "The death toll mounted in Ukraine, and no vaccine shipments arrive from the West." So, along with this mounting death toll, quote, voters turned away from Zelensky in droves. And now I'm quoting myself. By late 2020, Zelensky's approval ratings fell well below 40 percent compared with over 70 percent a year earlier. By December, some polls even showed that Medvedchuk's party, the Russian friendly one, was in the lead. And not long after that, in February 2021, Zelensky offered his response to his declining poll numbers and the surge of the opposition. He shut down three leading opposition channels all tied to that pro-Russia party. And the U.S. Embassy cheered this move at the time, which is funny. It's ironic for the U.S. to claiming to, to claim that it, it defends Ukraine because it's so democratic to be applauding Ukraine shutting down the TV stations of the uh, opposition party. But now it turns out, according to Time magazine, that the U.S. didn't just cheer this move, but they actually in- inspired it uh, because uh, Zelensky's first national security advisor, a guy named Alexander Daniluk, he revealed at the time that the TV station's shuttering was, quote, conceived as a welcome gift to the Biden administration. By targeting these stations, D- Daliniuk explained, uh, this was, quote, calculated to fit in with the U.S. agenda. So basically, the U.S. was encouraging Zelensky to go after the pro-Russian opposition and to prevent, and to pre- to prevent, and to prevent them from becoming even more popular. And then Time Magazine reports, not long after that, Quote, Russia announced the deployment of 3,000 paratroopers to the borders with Ukraine, the first in a military buildup that has since grown to more than 100,000 Russian troops. So that's a part of the background that I hadn't really considered, which is that Russia was responding to what it perceived as provocations inside Ukraine, including, you know, going after uh, shutting down opposition TV networks and going after the opposition. Because, by the way, this oligarch, this pro-Russian oligarch who heads the opposition party, he's now under house arrest. And Putin apparently sees, sees all of this as a further move against Russia. So that's just part of the background that, that I think is worth considering when it comes to what might be motivating Putin in, in, his, in his actions towards Ukraine. No, it's yeah. super interesting. It, it, makes me, it makes me wonder whether the, um, the, the, the prior administration's sort of America first policy vis-a-vis NATO sort of that were already there or, or, or maybe was causal. Yeah, well, I mean, that that is very interesting, Aaron. I have to look into that a little more in depth, but it all kind of adds up to my sort of basic viewpoint on this, which is that the situation in Ukraine should be understood as a product of U.S. intervention. It's not a matter of whether the U.S. will or will not intervene in any forthcoming conflict. It's that it's already intervened. It's already essentially a co-combatant, um, given its you know military role in advising and equipping the um, the 
military forces there, or even in these sort of more kind of backhanded diplomatic gambits like the, the vaccine thing you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, that's obviously a very good context. Um, well, thank you, Aaron, for uh, joining on this uh, groundbreaking call-in episode. <laughs> and uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Thanks, Mike. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.